Esther 4. If you're new to your Bible, Esther is, if you open up the middle of your Bible, you're going to come probably to Psalms or Proverbs, maybe Job. And if you come to any of those three, just go to left, and it's right before Job. We're in the book of Esther. Uh, this morning, it's, a, uh, it's really a privilege um, for, for me to have with us my father-in-law's mom, Arlene Simpson, and uh, she is a dear woman who I've gotten to know some over the past 13 years that Christine and I have been married. And um, one of the things that I love about spending time with her and that I love spend, about spending time with her late husband was the legacy of faith that they represent to me. And uh, when I'm with them, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, she has been following Jesus, walking with Jesus. I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself by doing the math right now. It's probably about 78 years. And uh, I want to be like that. And when Jesus called me out of darkness, brought me from death to life, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I became part of, of this story, the story that he was writing in, in this family, through this family. And her late husband, he served the Lord faithfully as a chaplain and as a pastor for many, many years. And uh, I, I love the fact that I get to be a part of this story. I get to stand in the line of Chuck Simpson. And uh, as I serve, as I serve this church, as I serve the Lord, and my kids get to stand in that long line, and what a joy, what a joy that is. So it's great to have you here. Thank you, and uh, yeah. So I'm I'm grateful. It's with a with a heart full of gratefulness that I preach this morning, and um, I'm aware of that. And that that ties into, I think, what we're going to encounter this morning. There is, I didn't plan it that way. This is just. That's just what happened. That's what God did. <laughs> Stories are really central to human life. Uh, so just like I love the fact that I get to be a part of a bigger story about being a part of this family, stories are what brings unity to our lives from death, from life, from birth to death. Stories bring unity. I came across one author who described how central stories are to our lives by writing this. She said, we dream in narrative, daydream in narrative. Remember, anticipate, hope, despair, believe, doubt, plan, revise, criticize, construct, gossip, learn, hate, and love by narrative. Stories are all around us. We are storytelling and story-living creatures. From the smallest moments, of our, small, smallest moments of our lives, how we determine to spend our evening, to the biggest moments where we live and who we share life with. Stories, they, they bring a cohesiveness, bring a unity to our actions. And these stories, they're not just about entertainment or novelty. These stories help us make sense of the world around us. One philosopher once said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? What am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? So in order to know what we are to do, we have to identify what stories we belong to. Now there is a, an ethos of our age, an idea that's, that's pretty prevalent in our culture today uh, that was illustrated recently in an article that I read. It started this way. Imagine that a man walks into a courtroom and swears to tell my truth, the whole of my truth, and nothing but my truth. So help you all. Imagine your incredulity as, for whatever reason, he gives an outlandishly false testimony. Imagine your dismay as the judge explains that all subsequent evidence and especially all cross-examination must support the man's truth. And as he instructs the members of the jury that they too must affirm 
the same. Now, while this courtroom scene is meant to be provocative, it articulates this idea that's adopted by our culture. That idea can be stated this way. Live your truth. Live your truth. In the ears of the world around us, this phrase is meant to sound virtuous and and tolerant. It's meant to bring a sense of healing and freedom, freedom to people. Live your truth. This phrase is increasingly prevalent today. Its ethos helps explain everything from the sexual revolution to our political landscape. We live in a society that is increasingly understood and defined by people aiming to live out their truth. One mayor of a major U.S. city recently made this statement. He said, you be you, live your truth, and know that we will have your back. His statement was made in the context of announcing that his city would allow citizens to change the gender on their birth certificate. So if you've got an F right now and you want it to be an M, you can change that. Go ahead. You be you. Live your truth. We've got your back. Now before we just relegate this phrase to being strictly a modern phenomenon, we should think again. We can go back to the very beginning of humanity and see that this idea was making its way into the world. In the garden, the serpent promised the first humans the opportunity to be like God, to know good and evil. The serpent, in effect, he says, you know that God gives you the rules and defines truth for you, right? Well, take a bite of this fruit, and you can be just like him. You can define your truth. You can be you. You can live your story. You can live your truth. That fruit brings with it the false hope that there's more life and more joy in living your truth than in living God's truth. And this is the same challenge we encounter throughout the Old Testament. The people of Israel constantly fight it. While they had enemies outside their camp, outside their city, their greatest enemy was found inside their camp, in hearts that longed to live out their own truth, live out their own story. They wanted to be truth-defining. They longed to go their own way and worship whatever God, sleep with whoever, whatever person, marry whoever they wanted to. And that was then. That was 3,000 years ago. Living your truth, it carries this promise. It says, you live your truth and you can have comfort and you can have pleasure. You can have joy and you can have safety. Living your truth actually points to the opposite. I mean, living your truth points to the opposite. It says, living according to someone else's truth, it'll look like wearing shackles. You're going to be chained. Chained and you're going to have no freedom. The serpent whispers, you be you. Live your truth. Now, the book of Esther has introduced us to a group of characters aiming to live their truth, to live their own way. From King Ahasuerus, wanting everyone to know his glory, to Mordecai and Esther, angling to get ahead by throwing themselves into this Persian identity. To Haman, who plots to wipe out an entire people because he's not getting the respect that he thinks he deserves. Esther 1 through 3, it introduces us to a cast of characters bent on living as they see fit. And what we've seen over the past few weeks as we've gone through these first three chapters, we've seen a lot of compromised people, a lot of people who just make a mess of the world around them. But we see the hidden providence of God as he uses that mess for his glory. Esther 4 brings us face-to-face with Esther's choice. What story is she really going to be a part of? Who really defines truth for her? What truth is she going to live out? For Esther, does she continue to live out her truth as a Persian queen, or does she embrace the truth as a Jewish exile? 
The first, living her truth, it seems to promise safety and comfort and ease, while the second could cost her life. Esther is faced with the circumstances where she must decide who she really is. What is her true identity? What story does she belong to? Now this morning we're going to look together at this chapter, Esther 4. And because this is a story, we're going to navigate it as such, like a story. So instead of reading the text in its entirety, I want us to feel some of the drama of the story by going through it scene by scene. So we're going to walk through four different scenes in this chapter, and then we're going to talk about some implications of that. So scene one is Mordecai's anguish. Esther chapter four opens on the heels of a decree going out across the land that the Jewish people must be annihilated. And this is going to take place 11 months from now. The last Verse of chapter 3 provides a stark contrast with what takes place as a result of this decree. You can see it there, the last sentence of chapter 3. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. While Haman and the king sit down for happy hour, after a job well done, the city, the capital city of Persia, greatest empire in the world at the time, descends into chaos. Look with me at what happens next, beginning... Esther 4, we're going to read one through, verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate, clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai's response to this chaos should actually surprise us, given all that we've seen up to this point. And I think the narrator narrator wants us to feel some surprise that this is Mordecai's response. Because up to this point, we've seen Mordecai as the one who thought it would be a great idea to send his young cousin into the king's harem. Mordecai was the one who commanded her not to make it known who she was as a Jew. Hide your identity. Don't let anyone know. Mordecai was the one who always seems to be just in the right place at just the right time, right around the king's gate, around the king's courts, to kind of get a uh, leg up on the competition, to make himself um, just be in a better place. Every indication of the narrative up to this point makes it clear that Mordecai is a proud man. He is a man looking out for number one. And he has thrown himself into a Persian identity to get ahead in this bustling capital city. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. Larry talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not a Jewish name. It's actually a Persian name. And it comes from one of the Persian gods. So Mordecai, this Jew living in Susa, the capital city, is going after all this influence. And he takes on a Persian name after one of the Persian gods. Even his refusal to bow down to Haman in chapter 3, it seems less like an act of nobility and more like an arrogant rejection of someone else he sees himself in competition with. But when this decree goes out that the Jewish people are going to be annihilated, Mordecai's response is to tear his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. Now this response is an act of solidarity with the Jews. This moment of crisis for Mordecai has done something to him. It's helped him to see that he's a part of a bigger story, a much bigger story. His strong reaction indicates that he's no longer Mordecai, the Jewish exile, who's, who's trying to get what he can get in Persia. He is now Mordecai, the Jew, who is distraught at the plight of his people. 
Something has awakened in Mordecai, and it causes him to respond with this, with this strong grief. His people have come under a decree that declares their death. Their annihilation is imminent. So he symbolically, what this does, the sackcloth and ashes, he symbolically identifies with death by tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai, he's embodying death. He's a visual representation of death. And this was a typical response in the wake of tragedy. We see across the Old Testament. This is the response of Job when he loses his children. This is the response of Jacob when he thinks Joseph has died. But the curious thing about Mordecai's response is that it takes place before anything has happened. This response is normally done after disaster, after loss, after death, not before it. Mordecai's acts, prior to anything actually happening, attests just to the inevitability of his own and his people's destruction. Mordecai, in learning all the details of this decree, is beginning to comprehend that he belongs to a bigger story, a grander narrative than the one he'd been telling himself for the last several years. So these first four verses, they also reveal to us a couple of other key points. First, notice that Mordecai, he can no longer go into the king's gate. You see that? He just sits at the entrance, beginning of verse 2. No one was allowed to go into the king's gate with wearing what he was wearing, acting like he was acting. This was the public place outside the king's gate, public place for beggars and outcasts, people no longer welcomed in more respectable circles. So this is where Mordecai is now. The second thing to notice is, that what, verse, is what verse 3 tells us. Here we see that this response was not just the response of Mordecai. He's not the only one responding this way but of Jewish people across the Persian Empire. Jewish people from from India to Ethiopia. And notice that phrase that there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Fasting and weeping and lamenting. This exact phrase occurs one other time in the Old Testament. Now the original readers of the book of Esther, the book of Esther was written sometime around 450 B.C. or so, the original readers, they would have known and recognized this phrase. Its use would have echoed in their minds as they read Esther. They would have seen that phrase and it would have jumped off the page to them. There was weeping, fasting and weeping and lamenting. This same phrase is used by the prophet Joel. And while we don't know exactly when Joel was written, we do know it was written before Esther. So the narrator of Esther, he wants his readers to, to think about Joel when they read this phrase, fasting and weeping and lamenting. Joel is writing to a people in exile, and he is calling them to repentance. That's what he's doing in in his prophecy. He's calling them to return to the Lord. Listen to his prophecy in Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. I think it's going to be projected on the screen. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And here's the phrase, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Exact same phrase in Hebrew. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is Joel's call to the covenant people of God. Return to the Lord your God. Now, going back to Esther 4, notice what one one commentator describes, the God-sized hole that's there. No one is said to be repenting. No one is said to be returning. In some ways, the, the actions are right. They're doing the right things, fasting and weeping and lamenting. But there's no indication that their heart is right. 
And we'll come back to this, but I think it's important that we continue to have Joel 2 echoing in our minds. So this is our first scene, the anguish of the Jews, the anguish of Mordecai. Now our second scene brings Esther into the picture. Let's see how she responds. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Stop there. Now we don't yet know what Esther has been told. Is she distressed because of all that the Jews are going to be wiped out? Is that why she's distressed? We'll look at what it says next in verse 4. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. We come to find out that Esther is deeply distressed, not because the Jews are going to be wiped out, but because Mordecai is making a fool out of himself outside the king's gate. Get some clothes on that boy. Look at how detached Esther has become from the world around her. In verse 3, we hear of Jews from India to Ethiopia in anguish all across the empire. We hear of the city that she lives in descending into confusion. And Esther has no clue why. She is one of the closest people to the king. She's in close proximity to Haman. And she has no idea what has just taken place. Now, in a sense, this is how Persian and safe she had become. Living her truth. Living her story. She was isolated from all other concerns. Particularly those of the people of God. And isn't this how it is when we throw ourselves into the world? We become out of touch with the things of God, out of touch with the concerns of God's people, because we think we have bigger and better things to deal with. And this is where Esther has ended up. So Esther sends clothes to Mordecai and tells us next, continuing in verse 4, the very end of verse 4, but he would not accept them. Mordecai's refusal clued Esther into something. Oh, maybe there's like something actually going on. Maybe he's just not being a fool. So she sends a messenger to go find out. We're going to read from verse 5 to 9. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her. And this, so this is a really trustworthy guy. Appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So Mordecai knows every detail. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Again, Mordecai has been so connected with all that takes place in the king's courts that he knows every detail of this decree. He even has a copy of the written decree himself. And this is before copy machines. Like this was somebody actually wrote this out and he's got a copy of it. It seems like Esther sending clothes to Mordecai has triggered a bit of a realization in Mordecai's mind. He realizes on the one hand that Esther has no idea about the decree. And so he, he needs to get all the information to her. Because on the other hand, he realizes she's in a place where she might really be able to help. Really might be able to do something about this. But notice the nerve that Mordecai has. I'm not sure if it's bravery or stupidity here, but it's certainly bold. Mordecai tells Hathak, I think it's verse 8, he tells Hathak to go command Esther to do something. Go command her to go to the king. 
Now, can you imagine being Hathic and being in the middle of all this? You've just been given a message from someone wearing sackcloth and ashes. And they've told you to command the queen, go to the queen, command her to do something that might mean she dies. Like, that's nuts. That is crazy. Look at how Esther responds. Verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king without being called... I'm sorry, I skipped a line. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther's response is one that recognizes her own reality. Esther sees herself as part of a story, and she is the main character. Last night I had several of the kids over in our church, and we were, we were talking about this text together. And talked about, I asked everybody, like, do you ever imagine yourself as if you're in a movie? And, and everybody raised their hand. And I said, and who's the main character of that movie? And they all said, I am. Not me, but each of them were the main character in their own movies. Although my son did try to insert himself in some other people's movies and say he was the main character. But sadly, he's not. But isn't that what we do? We, we think of ourselves as the, as the main character in the movie of our lives. And that's what Esther's doing here. Esther first points out something that everyone everywhere knows. If you go to the king without being summoned, you will certainly die. Unless the king shows you mercy. But then Esther points out something else. There at the end of verse 11. Even though she is the queen, she doesn't really seem to be in good standing with the king. In fact, the indications we're given, we're, we're given throughout Esther point to the fact that the king and the queen's so-called marriage is really an absolute disaster. There are two things the narrator tells us that highlights this. Look back a page at the beginning of Esther 2, verse 19. The very first part of that verse. Chapter 2, verse 19. Now, this is after Esther's already become queen. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, whoa, hold on, the second time, we remember the first time that they were gathered together, it was like the Persian version of The Bachelor, except for like way more seedy and not cool, as if The Bachelor's cool, it's not, but you know what I'm saying. As if our version wasn't depraved and immoral enough, this took it to another level. That first gathering of virgins was to find a queen, and that was Esther. The second gathering takes place when there already is a queen. Esther doesn't seem to have the king's heart like we would think she does. Why is the king calling together another, making another gathering of virgins? We, we know why. And here in chapter 4, Esther tells Mordecai, But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's been a month since she has been with the king. And it's safe to assume, based on all that we know about this king, that his bed was not empty over those 30 days. Now throw on top of this situation the king's temper. Our story opened with the king getting rid of one queen because she refused to come. What's he going to do when another queen comes to him without being called to come? For Esther to go to the king now looks like it would mean certain death. She hasn't been called, and she has no emotional sway over the king. She's got no leverage with him at this point. She's got no heartstrings to pull. Now there's one other massive complication with Mordecai's command to Esther. If Esther were to go and plead with the king on behalf of her people, she is going to have to identify as a Jew. 
Beyond likely death, going to the king would also mean the end of the story of this Persian queen. Because the law forbid a, queen to, a king to marry a non-Persian queen. Esther has been living a lie for five, six years. She has duped the king into marrying her. There is no way that she can give up her identity. In fact, Mordecai was the very one who told her to keep her identity secret so that she could live this way. Of all people, he should understand. So she tells Mordecai that there is no way that she can go. No way she can do it. Next, we come to our penultimate scene, scene three. We see Mordecai's appeal. Remember the beginning of this chapter, before we read it. Remember the beginning. Mordecai has begun to see himself as part of this larger story. Something seems to be awakening inside of him. Now, there's still a God-sized hole in everything he's saying, but something has clearly changed. And he calls Esther out on her false story, the very one he has already told her to live out and calls her into a much bigger one. Let's read verses 12 to 14 together. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. We can hold on there. It's hard to say exactly what Mordecai is doing here. It sounds like he is threatening her life. Or maybe just threatening to expose her as a Jew. Either way, it doesn't, doesn't sound good. But I don't think that's what's going on. As we continue to read in, into verse 14, I think it becomes clear that he has something else in mind. Look at verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Let's hold off there. We're going to come back to that first phrase in a moment, but it's the end of that sentence that I think is important to Mordecai's first argument. When Mordecai tells Esther that she will not escape any more than all the other Jews, he's telling her that there is a bigger story here that you are a part of. One that goes back before you became queen. One that goes back before your father and your grandfather. One that goes all the way back to your ancestor Benjamin and to his father Jacob and his father Isaac and his father Abraham. If Esther is to keep silent now, she is choosing to end that story. Her father's household will perish. She is choosing to live her truth, not the truth. And Mordecai's calling her out on it. Her father's house, her father's line will be over. One commentator, a friend of mine, Mike Cosper, he says this. He was reminding her not only of her Jewish ethnic identity, but of her spiritual, Jewish spiritual identity. She could not deny her place with God's people at a time of crisis without cutting herself off from it permanently. Withdraw now and be withdrawn forever. Withdraw now and be withdrawn forever. Mordecai tells her that doing the wrong thing is not safer than doing the right thing. One way or another, Esther's story has to change. Now the second argument Mordecai makes is intertwined with this first one. As Mordecai has entered this bigger story of the covenant people of God, he begins to remember that God, the God of Israel, is a God who promises to preserve his people. Now Mordecai emphasizes this by saying to Esther that relief and deliverance, they're going to arise for the Jews from another place. Now going back all the way to Abraham, God has promised that he would preserve for himself a people for his own glory. That's what he's done again and again. Whether Mordecai recognizes the God behind this preservation isn't clear. There's that God-sized hole again. But it's very clear that Mordecai comprehends the reality of God's covenant with his people. 
He knows that this is the bigger story that he is a part of. Now, at the beginning of chapter 4, Mordecai was embodying this death and grieving, this certain death. And now he displays this bold faith. God will preserve his people. You can see this transformation taking place throughout this chapter in Mordecai. He's a part of something much bigger. Mordecai doesn't say anything about God, but the very absence of God is meant to point us to the reality of the hidden providence of God. So then Mordecai points Esther to the possibility of the part that she has to play in this much bigger story. He says to her again, the end of verse 14, And who knows, and who knows, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, because we know the story, the answer to this question seems obvious. Like, of course, that's why she's there. This is the time. This is why all this stuff has happened. All the coincidences of this story point to something much more going on. But if you are in Esther's shoes, do you think the answer would look so obvious? She has taken a dubious and immoral path to becoming queen, to say the least. She has kept secret her true identity for the last five years. She has broken a countless number of Jewish laws. Really, Mordecai? You're saying that maybe this was the point all along so that I could save the Jewish people? That seems ridiculous. Or think about it as if you were a Jew in Susa. You are living in exile, and maybe you have held on to the word of God, and you are longing for a day when you can go back to your homeland. Hadassah, the orphan girl being raised by her compromising cousin Mordecai, he's taken a Persian name, she's taken a Persian name, broken every Jewish law you can think of, and become queen. On top of all that, she has hidden her identity completely. No one knows she's a Jew. She's living a lie. Really, Mordecai? Like, God has put her here for this? No way. All of this seems absurd. Or think about it in today's terms. If you saw someone cheat their way through high school... And because they cheated their way through high school, they became valedictorian. And then somebody says, oh, do you know what? Maybe they cheated their way through high school and became valedictorian so they could share the hope of the gospel at their graduation. That makes perfect sense. No, you never think that. Or think about if someone you've known for, for a long time, someone who you once went to church with, but has since seemed to abandon everything that you thought they stood for, they were unfair in getting ahead. They were, they're aloof in their interactions with everyone they once knew. And this person comes to a place of influence. Maybe it's in the workplace or maybe it's in politics. Would you think, would this thought ever cross your mind? Oh, maybe this is why all that happened. For such a time as this. That's what Mordecai is arguing. This should feel absurd to us. It doesn't because we know what happens. We see all that's going on. But the reality of this narrative is this is insane. It highlights a more significant reality that we should recognize. God's providence works through sinful, compromised people. In fact, this is all that God uses. Take a look around the room. If God has ever used you, you are a sinful, compromised people, person. But God, in his mercy, uses you. One commentator writes, It's encouraging to realize that even if we turn to God reluctantly, and perhaps even for the wrong reasons, we are still putting ourselves in a position to receive God's promise of mercy. Now here, there is another echo of Joel 2 in this passage. Mordecai says to Esther, And who knows? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? The next verses in, in Joel 2, verse 13 and 14 says this, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And then verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. There's that echo. Who knows whether or not God will do this and leave a blessing behind them. Mordecai's echoing these words to Esther without ever mentioning God. Come back to your true identity. Come, come back to this bigger story. And who knows? Maybe this is how God is going to save and bless his people. Now this brings us to our final scene. Scene four, Esther's call. Now there's a massive shift that takes place in these next verses. It's actually the first time we will hear Esther's voice in this whole book. Esther hasn't spoken yet. The book's called Esther. She hasn't spoken yet. Four chapters in. Look at verse 15. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther's response to Mordecai is one full of conviction. She calls the people to fast on her behalf, and she says that she is going to do the same. Now, a few things we need to remember. A fast, this fast was a huge deal. Most fasts only took place during the day. Esther calls the people to fast day and night. She also calls this to go on for three days. Not a small thing. And it's not just any three days. You know what these three days are? If you remember last week, Larry talked about when this is all taking place. It's on the eve of Passover. Fasting now would keep the Jewish people from this most important celebration. She calls them to fast. Throw on top of that, she's trying to get in the good graces of the king. Do you think after three days, she spent 12 months getting prepared to see the king the first time. Now this time she is going to not eat or drink anything for three days and nights and then go and see the king. I don't know if she's going to be looking her best to win his, his graces, but this is what she calls the people to do. And again, we hear a remarkable echo of Joel 2 here. Listen to what Joel prophesies next amid this, amidst this call to the people of God to return to the Lord. This is Joel 2, 15 through 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep in space. Spare, say, spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Now Esther, without probably realizing it, becomes the trumpet that Joel's talking about here. She calls the people to this fast. And once again, this God-sized hole that the narrator leaves there for us means to point us to the one who can work to deliver his people. God is nowhere present. Nowhere mentioned, but he is everywhere present. God is very present. God is nowhere mentioned, but he is everywhere present. This story of Esther shows us that this is sometimes exactly how God works. When our situation seems most dark, when God seems farthest away, most absent, when we feel most hopeless, God is there. God is there and he is working and he is in control and he is giving us all the grace we need. Like we sang about earlier, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Mordecai's call has yanked Esther out of her indifference, out of her self-absorbed narrative, out of this idea of living her truth and giving her, given her a vision for being part of a much bigger story, belonging to a much grander narrative. 
Whatever situation or circumstance you face, however hopeless you feel, God will not forsake his children. I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Your story isn't your story. It's God's story. And he is not finished with it until he returns. The crisis that has come upon Esther has compelled her to act with confidence and conviction. No longer is she going with the flow of Persian culture, but she is now willing to stand against the world around her, whatever the consequences. If I perish, I perish. Grace Church, may we be a church who has that mind among ourselves. If we perish, we perish. Doing the right thing is far more important than preserving our own lives. Esther is willing to go into the throne room to identify with her people in order that they might be delivered from this decree of death. Now, often talk about how the Bible tells one big story. We've got 66 books written by over 40 people over 1,500 years. All that's going on telling one story. The divine author behind it all, the God who breathes out his word, tells the story of his glory as he works salvation for his people. Esther 4, in many ways, acts as this arrow that points forward to a greater deliverance that needs to be worked for humanity. Now, there's no doubt that the Jewish people needed a mediator. They needed someone to stand between themselves and the king, to stand there on their behalf in order to be, dis- to be spared from this decree of certain death. But how much more do sinful people, those who have rejected God through their actions, their unbelief, their pride, how much more do they need a mediator before the king of kings? The king, the king of the universe, has made a decree. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, it tells us that the soul who sins shall die. The Bible is filled with statements that speak of the judgment that is upon those who disobey God, who are not faithful to God, those who do not walk in righteousness. There is this theme running all throughout Scripture. God's glory shown as he judges sinful people. And the reality is that none of us is righteous. None of us walk in righteousness. None of us are faithful. Romans 3 tells us none is righteous. No, not one. Isaiah 53 verse 6 shows us that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. We're all living out our own truth. That's what we do in our sin. Who can stand before the king? the sovereign ruler of this world on our behalf. Who can work deliverance for us? Brothers and sisters, you know the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. Brian Gregory, commentator, he writes this. He says, Esther's defining moment is but a shadow of the greatest defining moment in the history of the world. Though it took place not at a Persian gate, but in a Palestinian garden. In that garden, Jesus did not cower in fear or withdraw to his father's house. In that garden, Jesus did not choose comfort or ease. In that garden, Jesus didn't pray, if I perish, I perish. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. His was not a path of potential death, but the certainty of the cross. For him to deliver his people, he had to die. While Esther took on death symbolically, by fasting and lamenting, Jesus took on death itself. His were the nail-scarred hands. His was the body bloodied and broken. In Jesus' death, God accomplished a far greater deliverance than the one he's going to work for the Jewish people under Haman's ruthless edict. In Jesus' death, salvation comes 
from the judgment of sin and death and evil. Brothers and sisters, if you turn to Him, if you put your hope in Him, in His death, you have life. If you are in Christ, you have been absorbed into a far greater story than the one you tell yourself. You have been absorbed into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. You have been brought to have eternal significance in a Savior who intercedes on your behalf. Our response should transform how we view whatever moments of crisis we face, whatever defining moments we come across in our lives. We shouldn't see them in terms of us, us as the main character, the central character. We should see them in terms of God. Each of the moments we face, from little to big, give us an opportunity to play a part in God's story. When we have a difficult test or a challenging circumstance, rather than trying to get, it out, get out of it as quickly as possible, get through it, or looking for answers to our problems now, we should recognize that God has placed us where he has us for a reason, for such a time as this. And we should be looking for what God might want to do in us in this situation, in this circumstance. I remember a time when I faced one of those defining moments. I knew whatever decision we made would have massive implications on our lives. And in a conversation with a close friend, he asked me, he said, what's God teaching you right now? He said, God doesn't have you in this place on accident. It's not a mistake. He's shaping you and transforming you. So what's he doing? What's he doing in you? And this completely changed my perspective on the circumstance. Rather than just trying to get through it and find an answer, I was able to step outside of it and see God as a central character. What is, what is God seeking to do in this situation, in this story? This completely changes our perspective. My story has been absorbed into Christ's story. My life is not my own. Far from being a despairing idea, this story brings with it true peace and joy. Brings with it confidence and courage. Every day we face choices. What story are we going to be a part of? What, what truth are we going to live out? Do we identify with Jesus by obeying his word? Or do we choose to live out our own stories, living out how we want to live? God, in his providence, he calls us to be exactly where we are and to set our hopes, set our hearts, set our minds on him. And to do in the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, he says, deny yourselves and take up your cross and follow him. That was, I, I planned that for dramatic effect. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need light, so I'll keep going. We must daily tell ourselves a better story than the one we so easily get wrapped up in. We must tell ourselves again and again the story of the God who became flesh, who identified with us as the God-man, who paid for our sins through his death, secured our victory through his resurrection, and will one day return so we might have life with him forever. This is our hope. In Grace Church, let's look to him together. Would you uh, stand? Let's stand together. Uh, I've often mentioned the Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 16th century, in a little, little town of Heidelberg, Germany. And uh, its first, first question of this catechism, catechisms are meant to teach us truth. The first question begins by asking, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And instead of uh, closing with a song, I thought it would be great to read this together, to make this our declaration. So what is your only comfort in life and death? Let's read this together. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood 
and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes from Romans chapter 16. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and this is our hope, we look to him. I want to leave you with this, this word. I love, I love this verse. Romans 16 verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed.